Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for t- tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And look, make sure as you tune in, make sure you subscribe. And if you want to leave a comment, leave a comment. We love to hear from you. We want to know what's going on. I know recently you guys have really been tuning in and uh, paying attention to a lot of the, the podcasts that we've been doing, especially the one with Redman and I. And uh, we had so much fun doing that. And we're going to continue to do many, many more just like that for you. And today I got to tell you, I'm very excited about having a guest on that we have with us today. My guest today has conducted medical research in more than 45 countries across five continents and the South Pacific. He's taught yoga and meditation and natural health for over four decades. He's known as a medicine hunter on the Dr. Oz Show, CNN Health, the New York Times, and many, many other media outlets. He's authored 15 books. His latest book, The Lotus and the Bud, examines the role of cannabis within the ancient yogic traditions of India and Himalayas and includes an illustrated guide of the practice of uh, the way he practices cannabis and yoga. Chris, Thank you so much for being with us today, sir. Oh, thank you, Montel. It's a great pleasure to be on with you. How are you doing yeah. today, anyway? I am doing great. Let me hold up the book here. It's called The Lotus and the Bud by Mr. Chris Hellman. Thank you so much again. I'm going to make sure people see that. I'm going to hold it up from time to time throughout the show so people can catch it. I'm doing great, sir. And and how are you doing? Well, fine. Um, you know, we're up in Massachusetts, and um, it's cold winter here, so we're just dealing with that. But, uh, you know, all things considered, given the state of the world, uh, we're in a kind of a fortunate place. So I'm thankful for that. Oh, absolutely. Like you're considered the medicine hunter and really like the Indiana Jones of plant and plant medicine. Let's back up a little bit. And why don't you tell us, tell us how you became so interested in plant medicine? Well, as a teenager, I, I had a kind of a fascination for herbs, and I really didn't know anything about them. I was not well-informed. I hadn't grown up with them. I didn't know anybody who knew anything, really. But I just kind of had this interest, and uh, over time, uh, read a few books, uh, went to some organic farms, went to herbal shops, uh, developed that interest more, and over uh, many, many years, worked in the natural product scene, uh, you know, investigating crops all around the world from uh, apple crops in North America to turmeric crops in India. And I've been, I've been traveling the globe uh, full-time as a medicine hunter for 27 years now, except for the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm sorry to say. But, um, and doing this work uh, throughout, you know, China and different parts of Asia and all over Central and South America and Africa and the Middle East and the, the South Pacific. And it's been a really phenomenal experience to go into indigenous native cultures, to spend time with those people and to help to establish sustainable trade in uh, medicinal plants and, and herbs and spices and, and work with those communities. Well, my friend, I just don't understand, though. I mean, living in a time, especially in the last 22, 23 years where we become the synthetic pharmaceutical, you know, creative world that we are. I mean, I can't imagine the amount of pushback you have had to have gotten from looking at plant based medicine. Well, you know, you'd be surprised, Montel. I mean, I've been an invited guest at Pfizer, Roach. SmithKline, uh, you know, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, all the big pharma houses. They invite me in. I talk to them. I share about plant medicine. 
all of their researchers, every last one of them has read the medicine, you know, the medicinal studies on plants. They know these things work. They just can't play with them because they can't patent them. It drives them crazy. But uh, yeah, initially, many years ago, I did get a lot of pushback. Uh, People in my position were called the fruits, nuts, and flakes. You know, we were uh, very much derided in the media. Um, We were considered kooks. And people aren't laughing anymore because the science on plant medicine is extraordinary. Um, many hundreds of thousands of papers and studies. And you've got scientists working all over the world on this, in addition to rich, rich, robust traditions of health that just plain work. So we're seeing a, a, a different time right now, for sure, with plants. I, I think we're seeing it because the, the, the masses are demanding it. But I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not asking you because I want you to disparage the pharmaceutical right. industry. That's not what I'm asking. But what really throws me is that you just said it. They're finally starting to recognize the research has been done. It's right. not like, you know, I mean, when you hear this current president and the, the vice president talking about we're going to be a research-based, you know, administration. Give me a break. Because if they were really <laughs> a research-based, uh, you know, uh, administration. They would be paying attention to the research that our own government has funded for over 50 years right. when it comes to just that one product, let's say cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been really excited about plant-based medicine my whole adult life also, and not just cannabis. I'm, I, I have so many questions for you because I really want to get into things like radiola, you know, ashwagandha, you know, uh, shashandra, lots of things that we find that have been here on this planet for Thousands of years that, you know, not shaman, but, you know, doctors over the course of thousands of years have looked to to help solve some of the problems of the day. Yet we can't seem to get our pharmaceutical industry away from thinking that they can replicate what God made best. Well, and and it's kind of ironic because if you look at the class of uh, chemotherapy drugs, Montel, they're almost all plant derived. Some of them come from insects, some of them come from sea creatures, but for the most part, they're compounds derived from plants. And um, and they happen to be quite toxic compounds too. There's no question about it. But um, it's not just a matter of either or with pharma. You know, the basis of pharmaceuticals for up really up until uh, the 50s was plants. And now we have a real, you know, strong synthetic sector that isn't as effective. A lot of drugs fail their, um, you know, their phase two and three trials. Uh, It's not easy out there. And and the fact is that the the tradition of plant-based medicine works. You know, when you go to India and um, you see how people deal with healthcare with their uh, their Ayurvedic system that includes diet and exercise and meditation and yoga and herbs and fasting and you know it all makes sense. It's a lifestyle, and and we really have been pushed into a a strange kind of drug dispensation system. That's not healthcare. That's not taking care of people. No, absolutely not. And, you know, what I find just so crazy is the fact that you just hit it. You said, you know, back in the 50s, we recognized that plant-based medicine was probably the key. And we skipped it for 50 years. Now we're coming back to it after 50 years. And and it, it doesn't make sense to me, especially since 
you know, the amount of money that our government has spent itself on plant-based medicine. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, cannabis. And when you first started to experience, when did you first experience cannabis yourself? I first experienced cannabis when I was 15 years old. So that was unbelievably, that was 1967. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was, you know, it was a thing of the times. It was available. Friends had it. I tried it. First time I tried it, absolutely nothing happened. It was really disappointing. My friend uh, who I shared a joint with got really high, and he was obviously having a great time and a happy experience, and nothing was happening to me. <laughs> and I, I was really kind of annoyed by that. But, um, you, you know, the second time it worked great and I was, okay, very excited. All right. Now I understand what people are talking about, but it was a long time ago. And, you know, a lot of people don't recognize, especially even people who have now come to cannabis for the first times in their lives. This does happen to some individuals. Mm. Cannabis does not necessarily provide that euphoria your first go around because (laughs) your endocannabinoid system literally goes, bang, what is that? Is that what I've been looking for? Right, right, right. Give me that again. Oh, yeah, I know what you are. I mean, and, and that's where I think when we talk about cannabis as a plant based medicine, I, I can't continue to have those conversations unless I bring up and talk about the endocannabinoid system at the same time, because we are genetically predisposed to being affected by that plant, which is similar, produces cannabinoids that are similar to the endocannabinoids we produce ourselves, correct? And our endocannabinoid system is antagonized by those cannabinoids within that plant. Well, we when we eat dietary oils and fats, we produce two, as you just said, endocannabinoids, cannabinoids inside our bodies, and they feed the receptors throughout our entire bodies from our brains to our toes. And they help to balance, you know, different systems in the body, the cardiovascular system, respiratory, immune, bones, on and on. Gastrointestinal. And, and, and when we, uh, we often do not make an adequate amount of these endocannabinoids, and it's probably due to poor quality dietary oils in many cases. So when you take in cannabis, you're supplementing the endocannabinoid system, you're basically feeding it its essential vitamin, if you will, uh, in the form of THC and CBD and the other 115 cannabinoids that we know and the terpenes and on and on. You get this rich panoramic effect of biological activity. And that, you know, has a, a super stimulating effect on the nervous system and, uh, on sensory enhancement, all the things that we're familiar with that we experience as the high of cannabis, um, or if people are just utilizing something that isn't THC rich, then the relaxation and the expansion that you get with something like a CBD rich hemp oil, that kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, I guess, you know, now your first experience like mine was probably from a recreational standpoint, but you suffered a pretty traumatic back injury, did you not? A severe neck and back injury. And you turned to cannabis. And why? Why cannabis at the time that you did that when no one else was doing that? 
Well, uh, actually, it was a little kind of kind of just good fortune. I I did break uh, the seventh cervical vertebra in my neck, and it was uh, an extremely painful break, caused me a lot of pain for a long time. And I didn't want to take opioids. I didn't want to be doped out and constipated. And so I, I was really suffering. And a friend of mine suggested that I smoke some cannabis for it. And I hadn't smoked in years uh, since college. And I thought, eh, you know, why would I do that? And he said, it'll help with the pain. And, and I literally had never had the experience as a teenager of utilizing cannabis for pain. So I tried it and it had a fairly significant pain mitigating effect. And just, and this kind of relates to the Lotus and the Bud, my book. Um, I also knew that if I were to sit in full Lotus position, I could quell the pain in my neck some more. And I found when I did the two together, when I sat in Lotus position and got high, that I could get rid of almost all of the pain and dwell for a time in a pain-free state. And so it was really serendipity that my friend recommended cannabis and doubly so that I combined it with yoga and made this interesting discovery about the fusion of yoga and cannabis. You know, you call yoga primarily a practice of the nervous system, correct? Right, right, right. And, and, and it really is that, you know, you know, it's funny, Montel, um, I'm sure you've held a piano wire in your hand, you know, it doesn't have much stretch. Okay. But it has just the tiniest little bit. And when you can get that piano wire stretched to just the right amount, it has this beautiful, brilliant, clear tone. And that's really what happens when we practice yoga. And I mean, the full, practice of yoga. So that includes meditation and relaxation in addition to postures and breathing. Um, you really tune up the nervous system. And what I've found, and, and I'm not the first person who's found this, this is an, actually an ancient tradition, is that when you combine cannabis with that, um, you get this much, much more alive sense of the entire nervous system and all of the energy that's running through the body. We have at any one time a couple of million volts of energy going through our bodies. It may not seem it, but when you add up the numbers, we really do. So um, it's about harnessing that, tapping into it, directing it, focusing it. That's really the practice of yoga. And, and, you know, yoga, like you say, is not necessarily all about stretching. It's more about stressing the mind, correct? Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, you know, some of the greatest yogis I've met just meditate. Uh, delightful people, very wise, very high, very clear-minded, um, just sit and meditate. So, yeah, it's pretty broad. I mean, you can do the more um, physically challenging yoga practices as well. I did that for a long, long, long time. And I still practice a couple hours of physical yoga every morning, but, but it's really uh, a driver for meditation, for that concentrated energy in the mind. And that's something that we have as a people, I mean, have, have gotten away from in the last, you know, 100 years of technology. Yes, no question. You know, as we've um, bombarded ourselves with influences from all around us, 
so that every second we're seeing an ad, every, you know, the constant intrusions, it's actually harder for people to create space where they can just sit and enjoy a little bit of inner serenity. But the fact is we have this deep, limitless well, this infinite well of energy and peace that we can draw from if we just create that bit of space. So even though the the forces of modern society are clearly against us, uh, it's something to cultivate nonetheless. You know, do you do you think that we have kind of turned a corner here, you know, when it comes to, you know, utilizing cannabis correctly and thinking about cannabis correctly as a society? Or do you think we're still mired in the, you know, the prohibition idiocy of, you know, the last century? I think it's both, really. I mean, clearly you have people who got the memo a long time ago. You know, I suspect you did. I know I did. It's like, okay, this stuff is fine. I mean, I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, I was like 10 years old living in the Boston area and WBZ radio, I think, announced that in a couple of days they were going to air a live pot party from someplace in downtown Boston. It was like a big thing, you know? And I listened to that show when they aired it because I thought, well, you know, I've heard that these, they drives people crazy and they become heroin addicts and they kill people, <laughs> you know, all that. And, and so I listened to this show and I remember standing in the kitchen going, oh, these people sound smart and like they're having fun. And you know, it was it was a very different thing. I was expecting, you know, unbridled crazies. And, and so I think to to your point, there are many people who have figured out, hey, this is a good, highly beneficial, uh, superb plant that deserves our respect and is certainly worth taking into our lives. And then you have other people who are very phobic about it, who think it's the work of the devil and all that. I mean, I don't think the matter is solved at all. Well, you know, and it's really odd to me how we have <laughs> that extreme view of this. You know, I, I know you've spent some time, uh, you go back and forth on Dr. Oz's show. I've been on uh, Mehmet's show multiple times. In fact, he and I did maybe announce close to six years ago, we did a show, you know, um, about cannabis. Uh, one of his first shows on cannabis, which was one of his highest rated shows to date. So, um, where we had a very serious conversation about cannabis. And I went back to him again and Mehmet and I were one of the first on uh, TV to talk about cannabis as an exit drug for opioid addiction mm -hmm. and talked about cannabis as a viable medicine um it, it raised a lot of eyebrows back then but still even till today i know you know he is is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because he really can't extol the virtues as well as he knows they're there no and i think that a lot of doctors are in that position you know unless or until um federal regulations change doctors are really walking on tightropes and um you know i know in massachusetts where i live uh Many of the doctors who a few years ago much more freely gave um, recommendations for people to, you know, go to the medical dispensaries had to ease off on that because they were being hassled by health authorities, uh, even though the state allowed what they were doing. So it, it, it's, it's not a settled time for sure.
And just if you had the crystal ball and think about it, you know, um, do you think we're headed in the direction where they're going to start easing up a little bit more? You know, I I kind of have been arguing almost the opposite. I mean, you take a look at the fact that uh, last November 3rd, you know, in five states, the nation spoke. And, you know, the only winner of the last real election was, I think, cannabis nationally. Yet you turn around. What is it? South Dakota is now trying to pass legislation to overturn what the masses voted for. And New New Jersey is trying to put as many impediments in place as as they possibly can to slow down. Yeah. I just don't get it. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that that these social uh, waves, you know, we've had this long multi-decade wave of phobia about this beneficial plant that keep in mind until prohibition was available to men, women and children everywhere. I mean, there were there were cannabis lollies for kids. Oh, man, but, but people but people don't even understand <laughs> that before <laughs> prohibition, people used to eat hemp seed protein cereals kind of a porridge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, You know, and people don't want to admit the fact that, you know, literally tobacco wasn't cotton, wasn't what made America the country that it is. It was hemp. People don't get the fact that, you know, back in 1690s and 1700s, all of our forefathers grew hemp. You know, you were required if you were a farmer to grow hemp. Um, And you know, they weren't, they didn't have, you know, testing laboratories, so they couldn't determine whether or not it was 0.001% or 0.3% THC. They just grew a plant. Sure, sure. And, and and there's no question that hemp, you know, the whole hemp for victory uh, program uh, during World War One, especially was critical Correct. to the to the allied success. But Correct. but but still, you have a lot of people who have been tainted by the propaganda about cannabis. I mean, you know, uh, what was it in um, 96, I think, the World Health Organization commissioned uh, a report comparing tobacco, alcohol, and cannabis. And the report was so damning about tobacco and alcohol and so pretty positive about cannabis that U.S. drug officials suppressed the release of that report. You know, you have this you have this backlash that relates to a private prison system and laws that, you know, favor income for people who are penal. I mean, for, you know, penalizing people and deriving income from that. I mean, there's this whole creepy social scheme that has arisen up around the uh you know, the, the illegality of cannabis that has nothing to do with its safety, nothing whatsoever. It has to do with an an out of control society, really. Now I often talk about the fact that, you know, unfortunately when it was vilified, a lot of people don't know that, you know, the, the Anslinger who was one of the major forces in getting cannabis called, uh, Illegal, and then again, people don't even know that it was made illegal by the Marijuana Tax Act. Right. Didn't have to do anything with a Marijuana Drug Act. Um, The same guy who pushed that forward was a guy who was an advocate for cannabis during alcohol prohibition. Because Anthony used to speak about the fact that at least cannabis, and you know, they use the other term marijuana, which I won't use. Right. Right. But but marijuana at the time he talked about it being less violent than uh, alcohol. So people have just been hoodwinked because they don't want to recognize the fact that this is something that has been perpetrated against our society just so that they can continue to have a sl- enslavement tool. 
And yeah. when you look back over say, the last hundred years, when 80% of the people who have been arrested for cannabis violations are people of color, mm-hmm. you start to recognize that this has less to do with anything other than racism than it does um, real illegal drugs. Well, and in fact, uh, Henry Anslinger's push to have cannabis become illegal was really based on this completely baloney notion that brown-skinned men were giving cannabis to white-skinned women to have sex with them. I and mean, that was the the scary proposition. And it was, it was completely and, and awful quote, and racist. That, what you just there. said, for those who are listening to Let's Be Blind, you need to understand that that quote is a quote that you can find online sure. from Henry Anslinger having made that statement. It makes a black, uh, will make a uh, a black man want to step on a white man's shadow and have white women have sex with him. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The whole idea of stepping in the shadow is really crazy to me. I don't get that at all. But you know, <laughs> at, at the same time, I, I, I am hopeful. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, you know, in many states, as you know, people can grow. Like in Massachusetts, we can grow our own. So, with the exception of getting some seeds and some fertilizer, whatever we're pretty much out of the whole economy of this, you know, if we wish to be. Um, I live in the country. All my neighbors grow, you know, pretty much everybody in town grows. Um, and 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 I have seen this in Oregon and Washington State and Colorado and, you know, parts of California. And it does it does make me optimistic. I think that the uh, the dawn is breaking, if you will, for cannabis and people are kind of helping to return it to its rightful place, both as a as a profoundly beneficial medicine, as a food source, and also for future fiber and plastic. There's no question it is the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we do know that the byproducts from cannabis are, are uh, there, there are two public companies out there right now that have, dis, the, have figured out that the cellulose material from uh, hemp is a, a, gr- a better storage capability of electricity than graphite and uh, okay. and then when you think about hemp crete and hemp you know bricks uh, we know that that could be a direction we could go in to help mitigate some of the dangerous global warming issues because hemp crete bricks do absorb co2 we're learning more every day Learning We're learning more and more every day. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, again, this this moniker that you have as being, you know, the the medicine hunter. You know, there are so many other profound plants that are out there, like from ashwagandha to uh, uh, kava to maca to rhodiola to shashandra, uh, you know, uh, to, to all, all these things that you've worked on. Right. You know, how are we starting to see some of this? make its way into, you know, consumption by the masses? Well, I, I think it's coming from a couple of directions. First off, uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, the science is very good now. I mean, with something like, you mentioned something like ashwagandha, which is, you know, a highly valued herb in India. It's been used for thousands of years, has a great safety profile. But now there's also a very large body of human clinical science to support its traditional uses for mm-hmm. energy, endurance, stamina, sexual health, improved mental vitality, better immune function, all of that. Um, and so we're seeing science catch up to the traditional uses of a lot of the botanicals, that's giving healthcare practitioners, 
uh, much more confidence in these things. Um, also, at the same time, it, it's people getting results. You know how this happens. It happens in your life. You encounter this. People say, I tried such and such for my whatever, and it worked. Why didn't the doctor tell me about it? Why didn't they tell me that I could use, you know, fever few for my migraines instead of the migraine medicine I'd been using? This stuff works. Um, so I, I think that a lot of it does remain people sharing with each other the experiences they have. You know, if you're nervous and you take some kava and you get a, wow, okay, just a little bit of a pleasant back off from that peak of stress and just catch your breath, mm -hmm. you know you're having the experience. You don't need to be told that's real. You're having it. And you tell your friend, hey, listen, you know, I was really stressed out before that meeting. I took some kava. I was really relaxed in there. I was clear. I got a lot done. That's a lot of how it happens is passing on from one person to the next. Absolutely. And sharing with others. I mean, you work for, you're working with, or you're in residence for a group that's called product, I'm sorry, purity products. Tell us well, a little bit about that. I, I have, um, I have a, a small line of supplements, herbal supplements that I do with a company called purity products. Um, you know, basically, as you have mentioned, you know, I travel all over all all over the world. I'm in extraction facilities all the time where companies are making concentrated extracts of different herbs, whether it's ashwagandha or kava or maca or whatever. And uh, we use those extracts in the supplements that I have with purity. And it's really, you know, for me, um, it honestly is a matter of fulfilling a mission to help people to be more healthy. I mean, yes, for sure, you know, I, I want and need income like everybody else. But my driving, motivating uh, force really is more, I want people to be healthy. I want people to be happy. That's why I, you know, promote natural plant-based remedies and also promote yoga and you know, those aspects of life that just kind of relieve us of the burdens of stress and do make us feel more fulfilled. Now, let's talk a little bit more about, again, Lotus and the Bud, so people can go and get this now. It's out now, right? It is out now, yeah. Um, basically, as I, I think you probably know, um, the, com the combining of yoga and cannabis is now something that is somewhat popular out there. Uh, people hold classes now where before they didn't really used to do that. But now this combination is being much more widely utilized in different situations. In some cases, uh, you know, it's all CBD based and, and not THC based. But in other cases, it's, you know, whole psychoactive cannabis. And I, I like to go deeply into topics. It's a great fun for me. And since I have about 50 years of experience combining these two, uh, it seemed to make sense to me to write a book about it. So um, I've combined a lot of what I know about yoga, which goes way back to my teen years, and also uh, the interaction of that with cannabis and my experience uh, you know, in, in temples in the Himalayas in India and in different places around the world to give people something that hopefully is simultaneously informative and fun to read. 
And you give people, you know, a breakdown of a lot of the poses that are in here also with explanations? I do. I do. I want to make this practical and usable for people because, you know, I mean, especially now people are at home a lot, you know, unless they're frontline workers and they have some time to practice some yoga where maybe they didn't before. So um, I'm hoping to kind of give a little bit of an assist in that way. And to my friend, you have been on quite the journey. I mean, you traveled millions of miles, I'm sure, by now. But you've also, you know, been the gamut of not <laughs> just because of the places that you've gone and, and your journey has taken you. You have literally had, I, I, I don't know anybody who's had the list of illnesses and maladies that you got from <laughs> malaria to you know, numerous other tropical diseases to you've gotten parasites to nerve damage to you know, you've been chased by pirates. You've been held at gunpoint. You've uh, That's been all just part of and stung. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. You know, look, it's going to happen. I mean, it, it's funny. I never thought when I was a kid that I would wind up, you know, an explorer going to like bug infested places all mm-hmm. around the world. Um, but I have to say that the the reward of meeting people in different cultures has been so spectacular that I'm completely willing to put up with, uh, you know, those hazards. Um, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to be well-received where I've gone. I, I really haven't had a lot of trouble. You know, I haven't had, haven't had people be, you know, particularly harsh with me. And I get invited into communities that I never would get into if it weren't for the plant connection. And um, so whether that's in Congo or Syria or Vanuatu or Morocco or wherever, um, the, the plants are kind of, you know, they're the connection with people and communities. And I wind up making friends all over and having experiences. I mean, I, you know, for six years, my friends and I did these massive, massive uh, South Pacific firewalks in Vanuatu south pacific and i'm not talking about a backyard empowerment workshop where you put some coals on the grass i'm talking about full-on absolutely terrifying gigantic pits of fire you know and and i would never have had these experiences if not for this work so for me it's been the most remarkable gift and i believe that the gift the the sheer beauty of what I've been given demands that I do something with it. So I communicate, um, you know, speak all over the world, share about other cultures, try to foster some better understanding of different people. Um, that's really what I do. And, and, you know, yeah, the tropical diseases suck. Let me tell you (laughs) when you're lying on a couch and you're like at 104 fever and it feels like you have hot needles in every joint in your body. Yeah, really? That's no fun. But, mm-hmm. but, but if it were a matter of, okay, work in a cubicle and stay safe and don't go out there and travel, forget it, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been, no you've way, been, no yeah, you, way. Yeah, no way. Right? You know, you've been kind of chasing this cannabis plant all over the planet for years, for, yes. for 40 years plus from the Himalayas to the beaches of Jamaica. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got, you got an opportunity to actually smoke bong with the Indian, um, sadhus and you've, uh, pick campus flowers along the Silk Road. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, oh, yeah. It, it, do you think from a worldly perspective, you take a look at what's going on now, China, China started to grow hemp. 
you know, and, and growing it in, in, at a massive amount. And so is India. Do you think the world is going to start leading the way before the United States catches up? Well, I mean, the world is already leading the way. You know, Israel has been the leader in science, research, and cannabis for Funded decades. by the United States government. Yeah, they completely left us in the dust, though, you know. Um, the Europeans have had a robust um, hemp industry with, um, you know, very specific approvals for different strains of hemp, very advanced cultivation and genetics and the whole bit. We haven't had that. Um you know, in, in fact, I think the world has fairly substantially left us behind, but it is the case that the United States has been the pressure point for causing most other nations to make cannabis illegal. So are we, are we a reversal of that um, mm -hmm. is maybe going to come in the opposite direction, actually. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, there's the things that are going on in places like Colombia, places like, you know, Spain, India. China, I think, you know, the U.S. is going to get forced into whether they want to or not. They're going to have to do so to compete. Yep. You know, Montel, um, I guess about 16, maybe 18 years ago, I was I had occasion to go to a region of the southern uh, Siberia of southern Siberia called the Altai. And that's where when the last ice age ended, that's where cannabis reemerged. It had existed before, but it was buried uh, under ice for you know about a hundred thousand years. Um, when it emerged, it came out of this area, the Altai, and I happened to be there. And I was riding in a van with friends. We were heading way south, and I, looking in all directions, I, I saw this plant, and I thought, this this can't possibly be. Everywhere I looked in all directions, it was this plant. <laughs> I got out and looked and it was all cannabis. And we went through about 800 miles or so of cannabis just from then on, uh, millions and millions and millions of tons of it. And yes, I tried some. I thought, well, I want to know if this is psychoactive or if this is just hemp. And it turned out it was psychoactive. And subsequently, then, as you said, I've followed that also along the the Silk Road in northern China to the west. And um, there is a surprising amount of cannabis out there that nobody's doing anything with. Millions of tons is not an exaggeration. So I think we're on the brink of a new time, and I'm not sure exactly the shape of that, but I don't think we're going to have this illegality for that much longer, really. And especially since we've now started to see, even even if you can't you can't refute science, and I mean uh, recently I've read some things about you know the fact that we've now determined that you know there are some of the flavonoids that have now proven to be uh, greater uh, anti-inflammatory than any of the medications we have in the marketplace today. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have you know we know that a couple of the cannabinoids themselves literally restrict the ability for cancer cells to find a blood source. Right. We also know that, you know, when you, you change the terpene profile ever so slightly, and terpenes are found in lots more plants than just the, the cannabis plant, but we know that terpene profiles actually can adjust and elicit responses 
that we've never before known could happen. Everything mm -hmm. from, you know, anxiety reduction to, you know, uh, anti-inflammatory to analgesic effects. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that the more and more science and now the fact that we, the DEA is going to allow for more and more research of, um, you know, a larger sample size of what's being researched, I think that, that it's going to be too tough to deny. Well, you, when, you know, when you're talking about the terpenes, you're really talking aromatherapy here. That's the crazy thing about it. You know, um, we've known about the terpenes for 100 years. Absolutely. We, you know, we've known their structure and what they do. And there are some fabulous uh, works on this. Um, but but it is the case that that terpene profile, depending on what it is, can have a huge influence on the effect of the ganja. I, I remember um gosh this must have been 96 or something uh being out in the himalayas and coming upon a garden of cannabis and there were these big 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 buds and there was somebody nearby it was theirs and i asked if i could smell it and he said oh yeah yeah sure sure and just holding these buds to my face and breathing in the terpenes was its own journey. It was a completely high experience, you know, floral and skunky and exotic and beautiful. And I just thought, you know, it's endless uh, what kinds of aromas and effects you can get from cannabis. So I, I think as we go on and people continue to play with, you know, different uh, soil mixes and how that changes the terpene profile and all of that, we'll continue to make new discoveries that that relate back to our health. I agree with you 100%. I also think that, you know, there is room for science and technology when it comes to things like that. I mean, from gene editing to things like that. And I'm, I'm just very, very minor manipulation. And I'm not talking about, you know, creating something that's fake, but, you know, we can enhance the certain terpene profiles in certain strains or, or cultivars. And, if we do so correctly, I think we could probably find this plant, like you already said it. I mean, I, I've heard as many as you said, 115, but, you know, I've heard in Canada, they're claiming there's uh, over 160 cannabinoids. I don't know that yet, but, you know, when we finally figure out the true number of cannabinoids, and then we finally figure out the true number of terpenes, I mean, you've got something that can be, you know, exponentially configured you know, probably, you know, a couple hundred thousand different ways. Yeah. And there is a, um, a program in Israel um, that is, uh, they, they've actually run several thousand people through this program for different um, healthcare purposes, specific terpene profiles of cannabis for different health needs, headache, uh, digestive troubles, et cetera. And, and while I would say at this point in time that the data is not as advanced as it will be, we already have some good information on how the terpene profile can make a particular type of cannabis more suitable for, say, one particular health need versus another, you know, whether you're talking sleep or reduction of anxiety or, you know, reduction of stress and, and, and on and on. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll, we'll find out more and more. I think you nailed it. I mean, you know, we're starting to do a lot of computer simulations and, and taking a look at, you know, the one thing that we can do with a computer is we can literally run samples, you know, a million times sure. faster than a couple of years ago when we could only run maybe 10 of them. So, 
you know, it's amazing. I think that the the work that we'll see be done over the course of the next three to four years that I think is going to change the way people look at the plant at all. And, you know, I'm excited about the fact, again, like your book, again, combining the two and looking at to at into what yoga and cannabis can do together. Well, you know, a lot of people practice yoga now and um, to a different extent. Some people practice yoga twice a week for 20 minutes. Some people practice a couple hours a day every day. I mean, it just depends on on who they are. But for sure, there is a, a great interest in yoga practice. Many people have aches and pains. Sometimes you find that adding a little bit of cannabis to that helps to relieve that pain, makes the yoga easier to practice. Um, enhances a sense of expansion during relaxation and meditation. I mean, I'm a big believer in practicing without cannabis. I've done thousands of hours of yoga without cannabis, but I also think that the, the amplify, the amplifying properties, uh, when you go deep inside, I like to say the deeper you go, the lighter you get. You know, when you go deep inside and you have that great sense of expansion and that opening up, that delivers a sense of greater peace and ease. And I think that, you know, this balance of the two has been proven over millennia, just over millennia. But we're rediscovering it in a new way and we're learning to talk about it in a different way. You know, like the sophistication that you were just describing in terms of figuring out how different terpene profiles make a difference in the effect. You know, we we have a long, long road of discovery ahead of us taking this practice from antiquity and bringing it forward into modern times. And, and that's, that's something that people need to understand. This has been around for oh, close to 5,000 years <laughs> and mankind has written about it, talked about it. And now all of a sudden in the last 100 years, I like to, I like to often talk about, you know, when you really stop and you take a look at the planet and you think that we've been around, this planet has been here, depending on who you listen to, what scientists you listen to, 9 billion, 10 billion years. If you took a piece of paper and you drew a line across that piece of paper, the total time that man has been here represents maybe one little dot on that right. line. Right, at the very and, end, at the at very the, end. At the very end. Right. And we could have been right. and, uh, anywhere along that line, we could have been here, disappeared, been completely flattened by an ice age, completely destroyed any evidence of us being here before, and come back again. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. No question. No question. Look, and that's why when you say, you know, you look at the, the resurgence of or the, you know, the re-identification of, of cannabis, you know, after the last ice age, well, you know, we wonder why do we have an endocannabinoid system? Clearly, it was something that nature thought was necessary for mankind. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is uncanny that this particular plant um, satisfies so many human needs. I mean, the endocannabinoid system, and I'm sure you've had many people talk about this, harmonizes all of our other systems. It's remarkable that we didn't know about it till the 90s, really. It's just like, how, like, how did we miss this? Okay. You know, it's like missing your skeletal system. I mean, not only how do we miss this, but how do we deny talking about it? I mean, we, we right. know science has already proven that it is, you know, what is responsible for cellular homeostasis. 
And right, right, if right. we know that, if we know that, if we had the nerve to write that down somewhere and say specifically, you know, you look at Dr. Michelle out of Israel and several others who have done the research on this, we recognize, okay, I'm using big words when I say cellular homeostasis, but it's what balances every single cell in our body. Right, right. And, 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 so, and so cannabis stands to play an epic, not supportive, but epic role in all of this for humanity. Absolutely. Well, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, again, you know, the fact that yoga is a process of unstressing or de-stressing um, by understanding, you know, all the physical and mental and emotional, you know, impediments and uh, that restrict our, our sp spiritual freedom. For those who have been reticent to embrace yoga, mm -hmm. explain to them what you think it could, they could, you know, again, you just nailed it. A lot of us are sitting at home. We're sequestered away. We're, you know, hunkered down and not getting out, not getting enough sun, not getting enough vitamin D naturally by staying inside of our little places. Right. But yoga could really help to open up just like, you know, there's cellular homeostasis that you get from cannabis. There is overall homeostasis that you can get from yoga, right? So yeah. And, that a bit. That, and that's the curious parallel really to uh, yoga and cannabis. While cannabis is working through the endocannabinoid system to basically promote homeostasis among all other known systems, yoga does the same thing through the nervous system. Uh, and, you know, yoga really is an approach to living. So it involves certain postures and exercises and breathing methods and meditation and, you know, good diet and, and other forms of exercise. I mean, making sure you get out and walk and all of that. That's really all part of a yogic lifestyle. Um, I think that that some people are afraid that yoga is difficult, and you can certainly find some very gymnastic forms of yoga that are difficult stuff I can't do. Um, but that's not really the purpose is is to sort of go on an an Olympic athletic track with yoga. It's to find whatever is your edge of strength and flexibility and comfort and work there. Uh, with yoga practice. And even if you carve out, you know, 20 minutes a day, four days a week to start, that continual dipping into inner refreshment really turns people on. Um, you know, when my friends and I started practicing yoga in our teen years, because we just got inspired by the idea, we were stunned by what we were tapping into, this extra energy, this extra vitality, this extra mental freedom, reduction of stress, and on. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound like too much of a yoga infomercial here, but, um, you know, when I travel around the world, I take yoga everywhere. All I need is a flat piece of ground. Don't need any equipment, don't need any special clothing, don't need anything. You just need a place to practice. Um, I would encourage people to try it out and not to be discouraged because there are other people who can do wildly athletic things that you'll never be able to do. That's not what it's about. It's really about inner 
clarity and focus and uh, feeling more in harmony and living with greater awareness and compassion. That's really the big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's there's a couple of terms that I'm a little little not confused about, but would love to to hear more about. Uh, yamas and niyamas. What is that? Well, the yamas and the niyamas are are really rules of living, rules of guidance. You know, uh, for example, being being honest in word and deed, uh, and the whole idea, pretty much like the guiding principles that you find in many philosophies and and religions, is that if you want to maintain a good life, you adhere to certain principles of living that basically reduce the potential for conflict. You know, you don't steal from others, you don't, you know, get it on with somebody else's wife or husband or whatever the situation. Um, You speak truthfully, you know, you help others, uh, you're observant of, um, you know, the needs of others, that kind of thing. In addition to the experience that you have in yoga practice of expansion and awareness, also fashioning life behavior with the yamas and the niyamas, the simple rules of living, really helps to keep your life trajectory, you know, less encumbered by problems. You know, you, you know, you've met people in your life who are problem magnets. Whatever is the worst thing they can do in a situation, they're going to do it. It's going to cause conflict. It's going to result in suffering. They're going to suffer. Others are going to suffer. If you can just shape your behavior so that you reduce that suffering greatly, then that helps with overall happiness and joy in living. This is what we've got right here, right now. You know, whatever happens after this, we don't know. But we know we have this. So if we can live it joyfully, if we can live it openly, if we can live it with great vitality, why wouldn't we? Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's next for Christopher Helm? Well, I am um, currently working on another book called The Shaman's Pharmacy, which is about my uh, decades of, of work in the Amazon with, uh, and in the Andes mountains with shamans in South America. And, um, I'm about a third of the way through that. And, and COVID-19 does provide an opportunity to write. So I've been doing that, but I, I really do hope Montel that once, um, you know, I'm vaccinated and, and things are a little bit more normal travel wise, it'll be back out on the trail because, um, you know, I love investigating medicinal plants. I love sharing about other cultures. And um, I'm really not ready for that to end yet. Well, you know, and sharing about other medicinal plants and cultures, there has been a movement recently, and I say recently, in the last three or four years, a movement when it comes to psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand psychedelics. So what have you found so far about psychedelics? And do you, do you find them... Uh, like uh, science is starting to believe that psychedelics may have significant impact on, you know, people's lives when it comes to stress, PTSD, uh, uh, de- uh, depression, and things like that. Is that what you found? Well, yeah. I mean, 
a little bit of a retrospective. In, in the 1950s, there were thousands of psychiatric papers generated about the benefits of psychedelics uh, in, in therapy, uh, specifically LSD and also um, psilocybin, synthetic psilocybin, uh, as manufactured by drug companies at the time. Um, in my work, I work with plant-based psychedelics, especially ayahuasca, which is a, uh, a profoundly powerful psychedelic brew that is used by shamans in the Amazon. And, and we've seen a lot of modern science, uh, the Johns Hopkins University Medical Center study with cancer patients and psilocybin, that when people utilize psychedelics in a, in a situation in which they feel safe and which the conditions are right, you can have a profound experience that can help with things like great trauma. In, in the case of the Johns Hopkins uh, study, this is terminal cancer patients, people who are dying. There's no maybe they're going to die. They're going to die. And the greatest majority of the people in that study um, had the most significant spiritual experience of their life with psilocybin, and almost all of them lost their fear of dying. So we know that the psychedelics uh, can help to rewire our thinking. And, and I mean that quite literally. We have these neurological pathways that become our habitual responses to things in our lives. And with psychedelics, we, we open up many other different pathways so we have greater flexibility of internal behavioral choices. Uh, many people struggling with PTSD from bad military experiences as a result of being in war zones have found some relief with uh, the psychedelics and we're seeing more studies of that type. And yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I speak on psychedelics all over the world and, and I think that this is a, a great and burgeoning field. And, um, you know, I, I, I've uh, sat with, oh, in excess of 60 shamans in the Amazon and Andes um, participating in ayahuasca ceremonies down there. Uh, and I've seen people healed of things that they didn't think they could be healed of, traumas and pains that they thought they would be stuck with for life. So I think we're in a, in a new time with psychedelics for sure. And are there any other amazing plants like that that are may over the couple of next next couple of years be breakthrough plants? Well, I think that we're seeing um, with the plant iboga from Africa, which has been used uh, traditionally and ceremonially there as an, an initiatory plant. We know that it is one of the best things we've ever seen for helping with opioid addiction. Uh, it contains an alkaloid called ibogaine, which actually was an anti-addictive drug in the U.S. up until like 1963. Um, and there are clinics that are working with ibogaine now. And, and I think this is a, a very big deal, frankly. Uh, I think this could deliver a lot of help and benefit to uh, opiate, you know, people who are opiate addicted. And it is not something that you have to do again and again. I mean, you do it, you get off your addiction and you don't remain on ibogaine. So um, I think that's a big thing. I also think that we have not really begun to see the um, more of the therapeutic applications of cannabis. I mean, I can imagine 
uh, I know it's already happening, more and more therapists getting their uh, clients in perhaps a more receptive state for some deeper uh, psychological work as a result of utilizing cannabis. So I, I think we have that to look forward to as well. And, and we also don't even really, or we haven't really dug in as deep on just, again, the basic adaptogen kind of uh, uh, plants and herbs that are out there and uh, things like chocolate, you know, kava, chilies. Well, yes, yes. I mean, you know, chocolate, people love to hear this, but chocolate's probably the single healthiest food you can put in your body. Um, I had, and that's, and that's not, that's not milk chocolate, that's <laughs> chocolate folks. Right, right. Exactly. Um, I had occasion to, uh, visit the Kuna people in Panama and they're a very, very poor group of people. And they live almost entirely on, uh, bananas and cocoa and they drink like four or five great big, thick, like gravy, thick cups of hot cocoa a day, uh, just sweetened with banana. And uh, they have, the people who do that have no incidence of heart attack, stroke, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, or 16 common forms of cancer. And they've been extensively well studied by um, Harvard University because of this. We see populations of people around the world um, utilizing different plants, like, uh, for example, in India, with turmeric root, they consume so much of it. Um, we're not sure exactly why, but their rates of Alzheimer's disease are remarkably low compared to that of other developed countries. And there's good suspicion that turmeric plays a role in that. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of plants out there, green tea, for goodness sake, I mean, for keeping your cardiovascular system healthy, for sharpening your mind, for improving immune function, for reducing the risk of certain types of cancer, the the science is in on green tea. And, and you know, when I travel around Asia, I mean, gosh, we're drinking 20 cups of green tea a day. It's just the way it is. So, yeah, there are loads of beneficial plants out there that do us only only a lot of good. Right. Well, look, my friend, I cannot thank you enough for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Um, I think it's really extremely informative. You need to know you've got a home here whenever you want. You can come uh, back anytime you. you want. And we'd love to have you back. And again, the book is called The Lotus and the Bud of Christopher S. Helm. And, you know, um, am I saying your last name right? Hillam? It's Killam. Killam. You know, I am so sorry, my friend. I've been yeah, saying Helen the whole time because you're the the K on your book looks like the H on your book. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's the typeface. Don't worry about it. Yeah, Chris oh, Killam. Christopher Killam. If people want to get more information from you or they want to reach out to you, how do they go? How do they find you? They can probably just go to my website, medicinehunter.com. Again, that's medicinehunter.com. And there's too much information there, actually. Well, I never, never too much information, sir. And I got to thank you again for being a part of the show today. We definitely want to have you back. Make sure anytime you have anything new and you want this thing, you know, and, and just, just a side thought, let's ask some more questions about that. How do you think, or when do you think this whole pandemic thing may come to at least uh, you know, bring itself to not a necessarily a halt, but slow down a little bit? I think we'll be in much better condition by the end of June. We will not be out of the woods. I think that by late fall, we'll be seeing conferences and things again uh, much more safely. Um, 
you know, I really do think that late fall is going to be a much, much better and more relaxed time for this. I've been following it very carefully. And, and uh, it seems as though we're starting now to trend in a better direction. And I'm grateful for that. It's terrible that so many people have been dying. Absolutely. And, you know, being, being a medicine hunter, you know, and we know that a lot of these viruses and things have existed. And I, I read something that was very, very weird. Um, I read something, this is back mm, October of last year, mm. before the pandemic even broke out. I was reading an article, I think it was in the Washington Post or some newspaper. And they were talking about some scientists who were looking at an ice core that mm-hmm. was a million year old ice core. Uh, that they pulled up from a glacier, I think, somewhere in in Siberia. Right. And when they looked at that ice core, they the reason why they were looking a million years ago is because a lot of the ice had melted down to that level mm-hmm. all over this particular uh, mountaintop. And when they looked at that that ice core, they found a variant of the HPV virus mm. that was a million years old. And I went, wait, and so that million-year-old ice core had melted in other areas on the glacier to the point that that probably has been released into the atmosphere. Oh, are yeah. We not, are we not just another version of a virus away from another pandemic? Look, there's now another Ebola breakout in Guinea as of just the other day. Yeah, we, I, I, I heard something about that back yeah. again a year ago that there was a new strain of Ebola, right? A, a different strain, right? right. And, and and you know, as we um, tamper with the environment, as we uh, go into more remote places where maybe viruses have just been hanging out by themselves for thousands and thousands of years, we disrupt things. We're we're certainly going to see more diseases and more difficult situations like this. And I really do hope that we can depoliticize our response and really focus on, um, you know, delivering healthcare to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible uh, as these things happen again, because they surely will. There's no question. Well, I mean, I kind of, I, I, I applaud people like yourself because you know, if you, again, believe in science, and I do, and you believe in, you know, Albert Einstein, and he didn't make the statement for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So that means for every virus on this planet, there exists something that would be its opposite on this planet. And it's going to be guys like you to help us find those opposites that help save us all. Well, I hopefully will be part of that and not be the guy who accidentally kicks off over the stone that has the virus that destroys <laughs> humanity underneath it. You know, I mean, it could go either way. I I'd like to be on the I'd like to be on the winning side, but uh, you know, it's a little bit of a crapshoot out there these days. Yeah, I, I think you've proven so far though that you're on the winning side, my friend. So, Christopher Hump Killen, thank you so much, sir, for being a part. But let's be blunt. And again, you're welcome back. And as you travel the world and you get more and more info, you know, we are a repository here. We love to make sure that our viewers and listeners get the most up-to-date information on cannabis that we could possibly offer. I'll take you up on it. And sometime, if you're ever up for it, you come down to the Amazon with me and drink ayahuasca with shamans. We have a good time. I promise you. You know, I got to tell you something. I, I did an interview recently with a, with a woman who is really promoting, you know, uh, psychedelics here in the United States. And I... 
you know, I had the might I'll give you real quick before we go. <laughs> I had two experiences with psychedelics in my life. And yeah. unfortunately, they were both bad, but it was oh. when I was younger. And I'll tell you why. I was at a party, you know, I had one of those high school parties, you know, I don't think I was 16 years old and somebody had spiked something and I was one of the people who got, you know, got a dose and it was really the most unnerving memory I have in life. You know, sure. I remember, you know, I look back at it and I think to myself, but just but for the grace of God, I'm still alive mm-hmm. because, you know, I remember when it happened. When it was over, I was sitting on the roof of someone's house and I don't remember from like eight and that was the next morning. I don't remember from like 830 at night until eight o'clock the next morning. And that was that was and and, but there were little patchy memories in there, Mm. one of which was me walking down the middle of a highway with people screaming and honking horns at me. So I know that I put myself in jeopardy. (laughs) Yeah. The other one was an experience I had out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Uh, And again, one of these things, not when I was dosed, but I was just hanging out with some people. And these guys were, you know, happened to be messing with peyote. And they were cooking up a little pot of this over here in the corner. I didn't know that at the time. Had no idea what peyote was. and Didn't have the slightest clue. And I'm a little older than you. So this is is 1975. And uh, I remember... I willingly must have partaken, mm-hmm. but again, seven hours later, waking up, you know, and it was really one of those very odd experiences because I was with a couple of friends, two girls and uh, another guy. And I remember we woke up in this convertible car and everybody was naked. Uh-huh. And I was like, you know, hmm, don't, <laughs> don't quite remember what took place last night, but I think it was okay and I'm feeling all right. So nothing wrong with me and my buddy was feeling okay. Nothing wrong with that. It's okay. So I guess, you know, but but it was the most unnerving two experiences that I've ever had in life. So yeah, you know, all I got to do is have a more positive one before I get out of here. Sure, sure. Why not? Why not? Well, Montel, it's been a great, great pleasure to be on with you today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll take you up on, on uh, you know, the offer to come back happily anytime. Absolutely. We want you back. And so you stay well, my friend. You take care of yourself. And, uh, you know, uh, we, even though it's not done yet, keep practicing those safe mitigation techniques. Oh, yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> we'll do. We need to do that. And I will see you. Okay, Okay, bless you, man. All of you, make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Mm